Today on the Doc on the Run podcast, we're talking about the differences between minimalist and maximalist running shoes. Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Segler, and thanks for tuning in to the Doc on the Run podcast, where we help you understand how to keep training and running, even if you've been injured. Minimalist running shoes, maximalist running shoes, and barefoot running are all some of the more recent trends in running and running shoe technology. And there's a lot of debate around these different kinds of running shoes as well as different running forms. And I was recently invited to give a lecture at the International Foot and Ankle Foundation meeting in Lake Tahoe on February 17, 2017. And this is a medical conference that's given to podiatrists and sports medicine doctors, foot and ankle surgeons, all to learn about different trends and new treatments for their patients. I was invited to give a lecture entitled Minimalist versus Maximalist, Running Current Trends. And in that talk, I was going to try to explain to doctors the differences really between minimalist versus maximalist running shoes because uh, many doctors don't even understand the differences between these shoes. And I think that you as a runner can actually learn from the differences and, and understand that there's some big myths around both of these different types of running shoes and the running form that may be associated with them. And it may help you understand how to prevent injury and run further with less stress and hopefully without as much risk of injury. Now, the first thing you have to know is that for a long time, conventional running shoes, we basically had a few choices. You know, initially when the um, Nike Waffle Trainer came out, it was kind of a variation on the Onyx Circo Tiger. And that was a a new type of running shoe that basically had an elevated heel that was just made to show that there's a difference really between a completely flat running shoe and one with an elevated heel. But in recent years, when doctors have given patients choices of running shoes, they really talk about one of three things, either a cushioning shoe or a stability shoe, and then a few variations in between. So really, we've talked about three basic classes of running shoes. When you think about the three different classes of running shoes, there's basically three different types. There's a neutral running shoe, which is basically built for somebody with lots of inherent stability in the foot and high arches who kind of has impact as an issue. Then at the other end of the spectrum is motion control shoes, which are those for people with instability in the foot, which are people with flat foot deformity and uh, issues like that. And then there's in between is sort of this um, slight stability or what we call structured cushioning choice. And those are really the three broad choices. So when they'd say, what kind of shoes should I use? Most doctors, including myself many years ago, I would actually give a sheet of paper to the patients that have a list of running shoes that divided them up into one of those three groups. And so for people with really high arches who were prone to stress fractures and those types of issues, I would give them a handout that showed the different types of running shoes and I would circle a big neutral running shoe section and say, you should get these. Or if they had really flat feet and stability in their foot, then I would say, well, you should probably get motion control shoes. Now, when you think about conventional running shoes, we talk about their construction. We say, okay, well, a conventional running shoe basically has a heel height that's roughly 10 to 12 millimeters tall or higher than the forefoot. So when you hear the term drop of a shoe, it's referring to the difference in height between the heel and the forefoot. And so a conventional running shoe has a drop of about 10 to 12 millimeters. Conventional running shoes also have EVA or ethyl vinyl acetate midsole cushioning material, which is supposed to cushion you from the the stress of running. And they're usually made up of multiple layers of material. There's a hard outsole, there's EVA cushioning in the midsole, and then there's what we call medial posting or adding material to the inside arch area of the shoe that adds support. And based on the heel counter and all of these other different construction materials, there can be lots of support or a little support 
based on the way the shoe is built, and that's the standard way that conventional running shoes have been built for many years. Minimalist shoes are different. Rather than having a 10 to 12 millimeter drop shoe, they're either zero drop, meaning no lift in the heel at all, or they're a very low drop, just a few millimeters. They also have lots of torsional flexibility. You can twist them back and forth and twist them out of shape. They're usually very lightweight because they don't have lots of external medial posting and all these other different construction materials that make them more stable. And they have a minimal midsole with very little cushioning and as a consequence of all these things, they have very little support. Now, a maximalist shoe is different. So the Hoka was the first real maximalist shoe that came out. And many people think of maximalist shoes as being the polar opposite of a minimalist shoe. And that's not really true. A maximalist shoe does have more cushioning and it looks much bigger and thicker and it looks completely different than a minimalist shoe, but it's not actually the polar opposite of that. So in my mind, when somebody says, well, aren't maximalist shoes really the other end of the spectrum from a minimalist shoe? My answer is really no. The polar opposite of a true minimalist shoe is actually a conventional running shoe that's made for people with stability issues, a true pronation control or motion control shoe like the Brooks Beast, something that's very heavy, very stable, lots of medial posting, lots of inherent stability in the foot. That is really the polar opposite of a minimalist shoe. Now, maximalist shoes, interestingly, have some of the same exact functions and construction as some of the same intentions as minimalist shoes. They, they, Many of them, in fact, actually have a low drop heel. So even though the sole looks very thick because it's made of this sort of very light blown EVA foam uh, in the midsole and the sole may be very thick, the actual drop of the shoe is usually pretty small. It's usually somewhere between two and six millimeters in terms of the drop. So they're, they're relatively lightweight given their size. So even though they look really big, when you pick up a shoe like a Hoka, when you pick it up, it's actually surprisingly lightweight given how big it looks. They also, because the soles are often flared outward, they have a relatively supportive wide stance. Now, the minimalist shoes, again, they're, they're no cushion, no stability. They're really designed for barefoot or natural running form, which lets the body supposedly mitigate forces. And if you run with a true forefoot or midfoot strike, that may be true. Maximalist shoes they have lots of cushion, they have lots of external shock absorption, and they have some external stability, but they, they primarily want to let the shoe mitigate the forces in a sort of protected way that you would use um, the same kind of form that you would use with a barefoot running technique, but it's a little bit more protective. Now to step back for a second, when we think about minimalist versus maximalist, a lot of doctors say that maximalist trend came about as a consequence of people getting injured too much with barefoot running or minimalist shoes. And so when you think about that, you think, well, why would people want to run barefoot anyway? Well, one of the reasons is that it, there is some evidence that it can be more efficient, that if it's a more efficient running form, this is not complicated. If it takes less energy, you can run further, you can run faster because you're running more efficiently. Running barefoot can also help you improve your form if you follow some basic principles and some guidelines. There are lots of people that argue that improving your form can make you more efficient. There are some people that believe running with a minimalist style or running barefoot could actually decrease your risk of injury, even though the uh, APMA disagrees with that and has a position statement that says that that's really not a good idea. And many people like to run barefoot simply because of the way that it feels more natural and they feel more in contact with the ground and they just like the experience of it. Now, this is not a new trend, even though people say it's a brand new trend, it's really not. Zola Bud ran you know, in 1984 
was famous for running barefoot. Uh, unfortunately, she had an incident where she tripped another runner accidentally and, and was sort of heavily reprimanded for that. Uh, Bakila also, in Rome 1960 Olympics, he actually set a world record, 215-16. I mean, 2.15 is flying no matter how you, you cut it. Even today, 2.15 is pretty fast, and he ran barefoot. So it's not new at all. I mean, that was you know, 50 years ago when he ran the marathon barefoot. Now, in 2009, though, Born to Run came out. And in in this book, uh, Christopher McDougall argues pretty convincingly that running shoes themselves, conventional running shoes, seem to contribute in some ways to running injuries. And he discusses this um, concept of running with a barefoot style that can be more efficient and decrease risk of injury. And so that sort of set off this explosion of minimalist running. The thing is, the big debate is really, you know, do does forefoot running, minimalist running, forefoot strike, midfoot strike, you know, is it more efficient or not? And, you know, do shoes really protect you from the, the pounding or do they cause an unnatural sort of pounding form just because you're wearing the shoes? And we don't really have a true answer to that, but the American Podiatric Medical Association came out in 2009 with a position statement that said basically barefoot running can lead to injuries such as puncture wounds and increased stress on the lower extremity. But the fact is there's no actual research that shows that. So although I am a podiatrist and I've been a member of the American Podiatric Medical Association, I disagree with the position statement in many ways. I agree with it in some ways. You know, if you run barefoot in the grass at Golden Gate Park and you step on some, you know, piece of glass, a syringe that somebody left in the grass or a a rock or something like that, you can certainly get a puncture wound. You could get an injury. Um, But there is no proof, there's no actual evidence that shows that running barefoot will lead to injuries. That's just not true. So my disagreement with the American Podiatric Medical Association's position statement is that I don't really think you can say, don't run barefoot or use minimalist forms because there's no proof that it can keep you safe, but instead use conventional running shoes because there's actually no evidence that conventional running shoes reduce the risk of injury. Now, there's an interesting guy named Barefoot Bob, but he's been running a long time, and he says a lot of things that make sense to me. You know, he says um, he says running barefoot is probably not for everyone, only for people who are born with senses and bare feet. And he also says, if you want an expert opinion about running barefoot, don't ask the man behind the curtain selling shoes or orthotic supports. Because obviously, he, you know, people have their motivations. And so podiatrists selling orthotics that are very, very expensive and trying to convince everybody that they need them is probably not going to sell you a barefoot running idea because they cannot sell you orthotics. That does not mean that most podiatrists are doing that. It's just, um, it's an interesting take that Barefoot Bob has on that. But Again, you have to think what everybody's motivation is. Now, there's lots of research that's been done on barefoot running, and one of the things that was really uh, interesting was this um, graph that came out that was published in Nature back in 2010, and it basically showed that if you're running and landing as a heel striker, there's this moment of impact that produces this real serious point or spike on a force curve that can be delivering too much shock to your system. This is the Doc on the Run podcast. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. What's a virtual doctor visit? The idea of not running at all while waiting for my foot to heal was simply depressing. I really needed a second opinion from an expert, someone who specializes in helping runners. 
What you'll get from Dr. Segler, in my experience, is expert runner and medical care that's individualized for your needs. I'm left with actionable steps to recover from my injury. Dr. Segler is different, and I felt heard, didn't feel patronized, and I felt like he prioritized getting me back to running as soon as possible as much as I did. I just couldn't see sitting around for six weeks knowing my hard-earned fitness would vanish. I know Dr. Segler is an expert, and I wanted to see him in person. But frankly, I just couldn't afford the cost of a house call. I saved enough money to pay for my next marathon registration. You have an appointment with Dr. Segler, whether it's via Skype or on the phone. You can expect, one, he's going to be on time. Two, he's going to be able to spend more time with you than the typical uh, visit in a doctor's office. And both of those are going to result in a more effective diagnosis and treatment plan for you. I'm a young woman in the Philippines and I hurt my ankle yesterday. I just wanted to say thank you and that it's such a relief to be able to find a website like yours and get some information when I'm in a place with uh, little to no medical care. So I just wanted to call and say thank you. You're awesome. Book a virtual doctor visit and get a second opinion online today. Welcome back to the Doc on the Run podcast. Now, there's lots of research that's been done on barefoot running, and one of the things that was really uh, interesting was this um, graph that came out that was published in Nature back in 2010, and it basically showed that if you're running and landing as a heel striker, there's this moment of impact that produces this real serious point or spike on a force curve that can be delivering too much shock to your system, and that if you're running barefoot, you get a much smoother ground reactive force curve, which is the amount of impact spread out over a longer period of time. And that's sort of the graph that seems to be used as evidence by the barefoot running community that there's a much lower risk of injury. Now, it makes sense. The interesting thing is that when you look at the comparisons of uh, foot striking force uh, and loading rates, it's seven times lower when you're landing as a, a barefoot forefoot striker versus a barefoot heel striker. Seven times lower force. So that's a huge difference in force, but it's roughly equivalent if you're running barefoot landing on your forefoot, it's roughly equivalent to running in cushioned conventional running shoes and landing on as a heel striker. So although there's all this uh, stuff about maybe it being more efficient, like there's a study that showed oxygen consumption was about 4 to 5% lower in barefoot running, and that actually included factoring in for the shoe's weight, obviously because shoes weigh something. So if you're picking them up and putting them down, that uses energy, but they factored that out. And it was still 4 to 5% lower oxygen consumption, which implies that it's more efficient. And we also know that energy demand increases about 1% for every 100 grams of additional mass on the shoe. So the lighter the shoes, obviously the better. Although there's been some research, it's not really that convincing. Now, there was uh, some interesting research that came out in the uh, Journal of uh, Sports Medicine uh, and Health Science Medical Journal in 2014 that showed that if runners were instructed on how to run and attempt to land as a forefoot or midfoot striker, that they could actually gradually reduce and lower that that initial spike from heel striking, which implies that it can reduce the force because it smooths out the curve. Again, although there's been some research in medical literature about barefoot running, it's not really proof that you can run safer longer without running shoes, that you can run safer barefoot. As a personal uh, antidote on my end, I had tried Newtons. I was asked to write a review for them many years ago when they came out, and I'd always been 
uh, a relatively slow, you know, four hour marathon. And I would, I would do a marathon every month, four hours. I would not run for a month and then go run four hours. And when I use the Newtons, I actually use them just for speed work. I use them only on my mile repeat days on the track once a week. And all I did was I would run in the Newtons, focusing on landing as a four foot midfoot striker, trying to maintain an upright posture, trying to maintain a slight vertical lean at the ankles, not at the hips. And then I would focus on cadence. And all I would do is do my mile repeats, focusing on those issues with form and staying exactly on pace. And the next marathon I ran, I was 20 minutes faster, ran 340. No matter how you cut it, that's a huge chop of time. And now these days, I can do an Ironman marathon, get off the bike after 112 miles and still run under four hours. So it's been a huge improvement for me. And part of it is that the the Newtons, I don't think they're magical, but they really do help you learn very quickly about your running form because the lugs that protrude under there show you the wear pattern and they're very easy to analyze and determine where you're really landing when you're trying to learn how to be more of a four foot or midfoot striker. If you're running barefoot, running surface really matters. And here in San Francisco, you have lots of choices. So if you run around Lake Merced, you can run on the asphalt jogging path, or you can run on the sort of crushed granite stuff next to the jogging path. If you run at the path at Ocean Beach, you have this asphalt jogging path you can run on, or you can also run on the sort of sandy packed trail part on the side of the track there. You can also, in Golden Gate Park, you have lots of choices. You can run in the road on the asphalt. You can run on one side of the street. There's usually a dirt path. And on the opposite side of the street, there is a paved path. So you can run in a variety of different locations, even here in San Francisco. And these locations are all within a couple of miles of each other. Wherever you live, it's important to make sure that you have the right choice. Now, I often see patients that say they got injured with barefoot running, and they'll say that they were running on the dirt path because they think it would be more forgiving. And then they get to this section where the dirt path goes from the slightly higher elevation. It basically goes slight downhill for about two miles. And this one area, it's very eroded. And there are large rocks protruding from the dirt path, and they're big, and some of them are the size of bricks. And I've seen patients that have rolled their ankles there. I've seen patients that have gotten stress fractures there, uh, a variety of different kinds of tendonitis, plantar plate tears, all sorts of things from landing on these obstacles in the past. So it's not rocket science. You need to not step on sharp objects or protruding rocks when you're running, no matter what kind of shoes you're using. But some areas are worse than others. So the path is pretty stable most places, but there where it runs downhill and the the running water from the rain has eroded it, it can be very irregular. Now, we know that the trends in running shoes are often sort of sales basically is used as a, a marker of how popular a kind of running shoe is or a trend. And minimalist running shoes were really ramping up 2009, 2010, 2011, and the last few years. And then Hoka's also have been really increasing in sales. They had around $2 million in sales in 2012. But then they went up to like 8.8 million, I think, in 2015, you know, above the, the prior year. So they're really ramping up in sales and Hoka's growing very rapidly. And those shoes really are, you know, taking on a huge amount of the, the market share by comparison to where they were when they first got started. The minimalist shoes, one thing you have to be cautious of is that many patients that I see don't even know they're running in minimalist shoes. I was actually going to give a lecture at a medical conference in Seattle one time. And on the plane, I was reading a uh, triathlon magazine. I had this issue of the triathlete magazine and it had a, an article that was the 2013's best new models of shoes and they had 16 running shoes that they reviewed of those running shoes only three of them which were two zero drop shoes 
one three millimeter drop shoe. Only three of those 16 shoes did they say actually were minimalist shoes. The other 13, they basically reviewed them, but they didn't say anything about them being minimalist shoes, even though I would really categorize uh, seven of those, um, you know, half of them basically as minimalist shoes. So runners that got those shoes may not actually be fully aware that they're running minimalist shoes. There are also lots and lots of books on natural running or minimalist running. Born to Run is probably the one that I recommend to physicians the most just because that's the one that's been read by what seems like most patients who take up minimalist running. But there are lots of other good books. Chi Running is a great book. The Pose Method is a great book. Uh, Danny Abshar at Newton's wrote Natural Running, which helps people learn how to run with more minimalist form. But, you know, the modern running shoe has all been built on this idea of supporting and protecting the runner or attempting to support and protect the runner with an elevated heel and cushioning in the midsole. Now, minimalist shoes are way less cushioning, they're way less protective, and they have a thin outsole. One of the things that I think is really interesting is that Barefoot Bob, one of the things he says that really makes sense to me is he says that barefoot shoes, minimalist shoes, should be there to protect experienced barefoot runners and he sort of argues what really makes sense is that if you run truly barefoot you cannot run far enough to injure yourself or get a musculoskeletal injury like stress fractures or tendonitis because the skin on the bottom of your feet isn't tough enough to take it now he's been running for many many years barefoot successfully he's written a book on running barefoot and he understands it and i think that what a lot of what he says makes sense even though lots of podiatrists want to discount what he has to say i really agree a lot with uh, many of the things barefoot bob says and this idea that if you run barefoot, I mean, I can run 20 miles today for sure, no problem. But if I took off my shoes and took off down the street, I don't think I'd make it two miles. In fact, I actually found a post on someone's blog where he went and ran barefoot. And I think after about a mile, he had all these abrasions where he took the skin right off his toes. And that would be true for most runners. But most experienced runners really can run a long way if they start running in minimalist shoes because they're protected, their skin's protected, so they can get these injuries. Now, we know that uh, Vibrams, uh, they actually settled a lawsuit in May of 2014. It was a $3.75 million lawsuit. Basically, uh, they had, a, you know, it was kind of advertising without proof. So they were saying that these shoes would strengthen muscles in the feet and legs, improve range of motion, uh, stimulate a neural function that could help your balance and agility and all this other stuff. And there was no real proof of that. And so there was a lawsuit and people that bought those shoes actually got some money back. It was said they could get up to $94 per pair back. But in actuality, most of them probably ended up getting somewhere between $20 and $50 per pair. But the point is, is that there was no proof that that actually works, that it actually did what they claimed. Shortly thereafter, right after that lawsuit, um, there was an article in the Lower Extremity Review, which is basically a magazine that's sent out to mostly podiatrists and sports medicine doctors, physical therapists that was entitled The Rise and Fall of Minimalist Footwear. And they said that basically this is dead, that you know this, this whole idea of minimalist run is over. Now, I don't believe that's true. One thing that's uh, really interesting is that Irene Davis uh, said, you know, you have to fortify a system and you can't just suddenly load it. That's really what Barefoot Bob is saying, you know, and she says, if, if you do it slowly enough, your body will adapt. Uh, we just don't know how slow it is slow enough, really. And that's really Barefoot Bob's argument. So, you know, he agrees with this professor at Harvard. Uh, they basically say a similar thing in that if you load your system slow enough, you can adapt. If you're running barefoot, then you're really not going to run that far because it's going to hurt your skin. So your skin limitation is going to slow you down, hopefully enough that you can ramp up and not have injuries to your musculoskeletal system. 
when people ask me, you know, doctors at these conferences, they say, who should not run barefoot? Well, that's simple. So people with documented osteoporosis or who seem to be at high risk of osteoporosis, if they have weak bones, they're more likely to get stress fractures, and I think they're more likely to get injured. If they have a history of posterior tibial tendonitis, I think they're more likely to get injured because everything's too wobbly, too unstable. If they have sesamoiditis or sesamoid injuries or the injuries to the two little bones underneath the big toe joint and there's pain under the big toe joint, I think that's very risky to run barefoot because you're landing right on those. Uh, also, I think that people that get sesamoiditis in minimalist shoes, sometimes it's not because of the way they're landing. I think that's a misconception. I think that sometimes people get sesamoiditis from minimalist shoes because they're simply so unstable that they're pronating or rolling across the sesamoids and sort of pinching the, the inside uh, tibial sesamoid bone and it's causing irritation of that little bone underneath there. I think that people with Achilles tendinopathy, Achilles uh, tendinitis, paratendinitis, any sort of problem with the Achilles tendon, I think it's very high risk. I also don't think that at-risk diabetics, people who can't really feel their feet, they definitely should not be running barefoot. What I tell runners, if they want to try running, they should do it really, really gradually. They should ideally run barefoot either on a track, uh, someplace in the grass that's safe and free of obstacles, or on the beach, on the hard-packed sand on the apron at the beach. And I like to think of it as a cross-training tool. I think that it's it's better to vary shoes. I run in four different types of shoes depending upon what kinds of workouts I'm doing. And then I think it's really important to analyze the wear patterns on the bottom of the shoe and adjust your stride accordingly so that you can improve your form and make sure you're not landing too far forward or landing as a heel striker. When people start this, I give them a very specific schedule and it's really slow. So the first time they run one mile, only one mile. And yes, I know you're thinking I would never run a mile, but one mile is what I think is best. And no back-to-back -back runs in your minimalist shoes when you're doing this. I think it's important to ramp up and then see how your body's responding. Now, shifting back to maximalist shoes. So Hoka's were really the first maximalist shoes. And it's a really, really interesting story because these two guys, Nico and Jean-Luc, are two French guys that both worked together at uh, Solomon. You know, and they worked on all different kinds of stuff. But it's a really fascinating story because it seems like what they were trying to do is not really come up with a maximalist shoe necessarily, but they were, they were looking for... Um, a way to increase cushioning on downhill runs uh, in the Alps and Dolomites on adventure races. And they had this sort of idea that they could make an outsole or a, an external shoe that could cover an existing running shoe. They could use them on the descents for increased cushion on that severe pounding when somebody runs down the side of a mountain. And this idea of a maximalist running shoe kind of comes from a number of different things, including oversized mountain bike tires, oversized tennis rackets, and, and shaped skis. And so they kind of drew on their experience of shaped skis and started shaping the EVA soles rather than adding tons of extra material for stability. And they experimented with the materials and getting the EVA fluffier and sort of more expansive so that it was bigger and lighter. And that what they came up with was the first Hoka. And it had 29 millimeters of cushion. So it was a big, thick sole, but it was all, all shaped. So it was very, very, very lightweight by comparison. The maximalist shoes, it's not just more cushion. Everybody thinks it's more cushion, more material and all that, but it's it's not. So there is this, you know, low drop minimalist shoe. When you think about maximalist shoes and you think about that concept, that low drop minimalist shoe, that idea that can encourage midfoot or forefoot strike, well, Jim Van Dien at Hoka says you know, we agree with that geometry, but we provide it in a protected environment rather than the unprotected 
environment that Vibrams did. So it's not completely different, but there are some unique features built into the Hoka's. One of them is an oversized midsole. Obviously it's much thicker than a regular shoe, but it has this rocker or curvature that's built into the forefoot and that rocker is fairly stiff. So when you pick up a Hoka, it's big and it's light, but then when you try to twist it or you try to bend the forefoot, it's actually pretty stiff. And part of that is because of this unique active foot frame that they have built into the, the sole itself. So Hoka's come in a variety of different uh, styles now. They have lots of them. And there have been lots of copiers. There are lots of people that imitate the Hoka's. Um, and there's the, um, the Ultras have a zero drop maximalist shoe. But it has a 36 millimeter outsole. So it's a very, very thick sole, but a zero drop. So the, there's no heel lift at all. So again, this, this Olympus that Ultra makes is... Really, it's similar in some respects to a minimalist shoe, but it has a lot more cushioning, a lot more padding to protect you. We think that minimalist shoes can teach you how to use your body to cushion the impact, but you know, Irene Davis once said that the maximalist shoes don't really teach you how to do that. So as the cushioning wears out after two or 300 miles, there's some chance that you might start getting aches and pains because you're no longer protected because the EVA will collapse over time. When we think about this, we think, okay, well, that makes sense. You're protected, you're cushioned. So, you know, does that really mean you're at reduced risk of injury? Well, we don't really know that. But what we do know is there was a study in 2010 that was comparing running on pavement to running on grass, and it found that softer surfaces led to lower localized pressure on the bottom of the foot. No surprise because you're spreading out forces because you're landing on something softer. But of course, the overall sum of forces isn't any higher. The, the cushion just spreads it out. In 2013, a study that showed that runners transitioning to minimalist shoes showed an increase in bone stress injuries measured on MRI when compared to runners using traditional shoes. And so maybe the opposite is true as well. And how is that? Well, one thing is that you know, if you're landing on a softer surface, then your body has to do something to add stability. And part of that is increasing leg stiffness. There was a study in 2007 that demonstrated that runners with a history of tibial stress fractures or stress fractures in the shin bone, they have higher leg stiffness at the knee joint when they run. So the higher the leg stiffness, that stiffness may transfer more of the shock to the skeletal system and increase your risk of an injury. Running on ultra soft surfaces requires leg stiffness, and we think that that could contribute to some of these other kind of stress injuries, but we don't, again, we don't really know that for a fact. Now, there is some very new research coming out that shows that there's some interesting biomechanics that are kind of at play when people are running in highly cushioned running shoes. That's all in the very early stages. There's yet no real evidence maximalist shoes can protect you. And Jim Van Dien at Hoka, in an interview that I heard of Beyond Runners Connect, uh, which is a very interesting interview, by the way, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Jim Van Dien says, when asked about evidence, he said, we're very careful to say that there is no evidence right now. And obviously with what Vibrams went through, the last thing that Hoka wants is to be accused of making false claims. So they are very good at making shoes that protect and stabilize the foot, but whether or not that means that they're going to be injury-free, we certainly cannot say that. But it is an interesting concept, and again, it's not the exact opposite of minimal shoes. It's just it's a more protective way of running with minimalist form, potentially with lower risk of injury, but studies will show that eventually. So 
you know, there are lots of people that I do recommend hokas for when they get injured that I say this would be a good idea for you. One of those is sesamoiditis. There are many people that I think can benefit from those shoes. It's just trying to figure out whether or not your particular running form, your biomechanics, and your history of injury really warrants a shift in your shoes. So when you go to the running shoe store and you're trying to determine whether or not you should try a minimalist shoe, a maximalist shoe, or some version of a conventional running shoe, you have to go in with the knowledge of what your history has been, what kind of injuries you get, and then talk to the experts at the running shoe store and try to get them to help you understand which shoes might be best for you for which reason. And that's regardless of what the current trends are. If you have a question that you would like answered as a future edition of the Doc on the Run podcast, send it to me and then make sure you join me in the next edition of the Doc on the Run podcast. Thanks again for listening.